Welcome to the Hindus in Focus podcast. I'm Zubeda Hamid, your host for today. The COVID-19 pandemic continues to rage, but with the various unlocked guidelines released by the central government, work in public places that had been shut for months have now begun to reopen. On October 5th, the Ministry of Education issued detailed guidelines for the reopening of schools after October 15th in a graded manner, but stated that no student would be forced to attend without their parents' consent. With schools possibly reopening in the near future, we take a look at how the pandemic has affected education, how feasible it is for schools to comply with all safety guidelines, what schools can do in order to ensure students catch up with their education, and what the potential for digital education in the country is. Joining us for this podcast is Rukmini Banerjee, Chief Executive Officer of Pratham Education Foundation. Dr. Banerjee has extensive experience in the field, working directly with communities as well as implementing large-scale partnerships with governments. Uh, good afternoon, Dr. Rukmini Banerjee, and welcome to the Hindus In Focus podcast. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. Ms. Rukmini, today we are going to be speaking about uh, the Ministry of Education's recent guidelines on reopening schools in a phased manner after October 15th. The Ministry of Education has issued a detailed SOP for the operation of schools, specifying, among other things, staggered timetables, double shifts, mandatory six-feet distancing, and frequent sanitization of the premises. Right. Doctor, could you tell us how much of this is feasible in schools, especially in government schools and primary schools where often just a few staff members run the entire institution? No, see, I think that, um, you know, everybody wants to go back to school. Uh, you know, teachers, parents, children. And I think that the point is that, you know, once that people are back in school and actually going every day, it will signal also that things have come back to some kind of a routine. Now, um, obviously, schools are at very different uh, levels of, uh, you know, functioning. Um, so in a Apart from the fact that you need some additional inputs like sanitizers or masks or, you know, things that need to be additionally brought, I think the rest of it can be managed by, you know, a reasonable and a kind of a sensible phasing in, right? Because a lot of this depends on the faith that people have on each other and how much you trust in each other to, you know, do the right thing and take the right precaution. Um, to me, it looks like schools which have strong communities around them, uh, meaning that the school and the uh, families are not that far away, will work out ways to do this. But schools which maybe don't have a close relationship with their families may have to struggle a little bit harder. Right. But doctor, going back to the question of opening schools at all, uh is this actually the right time? I mean, the pandemic isn't going away and a vaccine may not be available to the middle of next year. But also, conversely, how long can the schools remain closed? And if they do open, what risks should be weighed in before parents consent to send in their children? I'm sure that the you know, Ministry of Education, along with the Ministry of Health, have you know, gone through, I mean, I, I'm not an you know, expert in health at all. And so I would say that especially these very detailed guidelines show that a lot of consideration has gone into preparing them and weighing of these kinds of risks. So I would say that if such a detailed document has been brought out and, you know, the instructions are that do it in a phase-wise manner that makes sense in your own context. And then I think it is up to, I mean, frankly, I think 
once guidelines are there, once frameworks are there, once kind of a supporting structure is there, these are individual decisions that at a local level, uh, you know, looking at the context around uh, authorities, both, I mean, local authorities and uh, school authorities will have to take. I mean, in our own homes, you may live in the same neighborhood, but different families are often behaving differently because that's a decision that the family has taken, right? So all of this, I think, is that, you know, we've had schools closed for over six months. Uh, you know, in some form or fashion, the world outside is, you know, moving into some kind of a routine. And therefore, it is necessary, I think, to start testing the waters to see, you know, what as communities and schools we are able to do. So uh, some countries abroad, like you said, uh, parts of the world are moving into a settled routine now. Uh, some countries abroad have uh, reopened schools. And uh, in some places, they have reported a spike in coronavirus cases following the reopenings. Uh, is that something uh, India and Indian parents should be worried about? And are there any lessons that we can draw from the experiences in other countries? I mean, there are also countries who never shut schools at all. Like the right. Scandinavian yeah. countries never shut the schools and they still had a, quite a lot of cases outside. So, look, I'm not a health expert, so this is really not my domain. I would say that if, you know, relevant, uh, you know, authorities at the national level have done the, uh, the you know, the due diligence and looked at data and, you know, taken the right precautions and come up with such a detailed guideline. Now it's a question of how much of this detailed guideline are people able to follow at a local level and what makes sense at the local level. So tell us a little bit about that, Doctor. How, how, much, uh, how much can be done at a local level? I think that the fact that, you know, children will come to a school will really depend a lot on the relationship between the, what the school has with the parent. So my, my you know, if I was the uh, a, a teacher in a school, we would start off by making phone calls to every parent. Uh, for those who we cannot get through on the phone, we would announce a time that you can, you know, uh, uh, as a teacher, I may even visit every hamlet in my village and assure people that this is what we are trying to do. Uh, then perhaps ask parents to come to school once to take a look around to see how the school is and what can be done. Ask for help to do that. And then come up with the kinds of schedules that they are talking about. To me, it looks like this is a very good way to have in small groups children come so that you can actually spend time with them. We need to reconnect. Teachers and children need to reconnect. Parents and teachers need to reconnect. Do it in a phase-wise way. You can have a conversation about every kid that comes. You can do a bunch of activities together to see how the kid is. And then build slowly from there. And really, it's a question of trust and faith in each other. And this is a very good time to build it. Do we have the infrastructure required, Doctor? Uh, especially at our smaller schools and in some of our uh, states that do not have robust education systems. Do we have the infrastructure in place? To be able to have maintenance staff come in and sanitize the place regularly, to be able to enforce six feet of distance, to be able to do all of these things that probably require extra money and extra human resources. I don't think the distance once requires extra resources. It requires a lot of uh, uh, awareness and discussion which between teachers and parents. I think that's one of the things they should do. As I said, I think sanitizers... Uh, are something that we'll have to have. Drinking, I mean, drinking water and regular water supply in the school will be necessary if we need to wash hands. And I think that these are things that, uh, you know, well planned between the panchayat and the school can be done. 
I mean, we are managing to do all of this at home in whatever resources we have. And therefore, I don't see why, if it is properly planned, properly discussed, we should not be able to carry out a reasonable way in which this can all begin to happen. Should schools open at all levels, doctor, primary as well as secondary, or will it be more difficult to enforce uh, some of these norms among younger children? Now, I think that the older there are children are at different ages and they're able to do different things. I think in terms of a lot of self-learning or small group learning, older children who are able to read and to do a bunch of things on their own, they're able. So my suggestion actually would be to start uh, the older ones can be assigned things to do. They, anyway, the people who teach older children, the people who teach younger children are different. So they are not really competing for the same teacher resources. Uh, I think phasing in in reasonable numbers, uh, you know, once, as I said, get your parents in, talk to them, win their support, give parents something to take home. Uh, you know, then they uh, start with bringing some children back in rotation or have all children come back, but come back at different times. These are all permutation combinations that the SOP suggests can be done. And therefore, I think that, you know, this uh, thinking about what can people do at home, what can children do on their own, what can be done in school, it's really a different way of, you know, phasing in how you're going to you know, initiate the teaching learning activities. And I think there's a very big opportunity for two things. One is for parents, families, and schools to become closer. And the second is for really looking child by child. Because usually when we teach in a big class, you do the same thing for everyone. But here, if you have the opportunity to have individual time with each child and family, doing it in a somewhat more personalized way, both from the well-being and the mindset of the child, as well as their academic level, actually seems possible. So would you say that this is a somewhat of an opportunity to rethink the way we do our education system? Absolutely. I think there are many things that this situation provides. First is, I think that when schools begin to reopen and when it is possible even to have smaller groups, I think we should recognize and celebrate the contribution of parents and families and communities because that has been very large in the last six months. Second, I think this gives this individual connecting opportunity between children, between teachers. You know, normally schools open in one fine day and everybody shows up. Whereas this, if you are going to do it in a phase-wise way, you're able to actually welcome every single child. Thirdly, I think it's an opportunity to see with this big break where each child is at, you know, both emotionally, socially, academically, and you don't have to use your traditional means of you know exams or anything to figure that out you can figure that out by doing activities together and so on and our suggestion from pratham has been that you know if we spend the rest of the year really focusing on catch up on you know we have a big uh, you know problems in india with children uh, not having the basic foundational skills and this may be the time to really put other things aside and focus on that um, you know there are calculations that we've done which suggest that if you were to really do this well, particularly for kids who are in uh, class three and upwards, you may end up uh, uh, better off uh, in terms of foundational learning than you were when the COVID uh, crisis started. So I think it's, it's a very important time to really think what is the right thing to do once kids come back. 
of course this phasing in and all of this is a you know this will be a phase of stabilizing things um i'm sure you're familiar with this study which is being cited a lot from pakistan uh, which looked at the uh, consequences of the earthquake 5 years after the earthquake had happened and what they found was that uh, the economic indicators of those families had gone back to pre disaster levels but the learning levels of the children were still way behind and the study attributes that difference much less to the fact that schools were closed and much more to what was done with the kids once the schools opened so i think that i would caution against hurrying up and going back to the syllabus trying to finish the whole year's content in the next 6 months and instead just take our times to really rebuild back the foundational skills for the kids who are you know as i said class 3 and older because then they'll be able to tackle everything that comes to them in a much more equipped way than it was before the crisis happened doctor going back to this uh, study uh, that you cited and also about uh, how much children have missed out on uh, because of the pandemic and the lockdown and the closures of workspaces in schools we already have children in india missing out on things like essential vaccinations in addition to their parents often having lost their jobs and experts are also fearing that this will adversely impact child nutrition In addition to this we have suboptimal learning outcomes as the ASA reports have shown. So how bad is the situation now in terms of primary education and enrollment in schools once the schools reopen and what other second order effects can this have? See I think that the we are very high enrollment levels right so we know where the children are in any community once schools open this reaching out individually child by child will be necessary. because as soon as personal efforts are made whether by phone or by inviting parents or by going to visit them children will come back everybody wants to come back to a normal there will be cases there will be particularly vulnerable families and so obviously you know what to be done with them has to be thought about uh, but i think that this is again i think there will be an effort to send as many children back as possible on the health matters again i can't uh, i can't comment on Uh, the vaccination and other things because this is a whole other you know health aspect but i think the midday meal is going to play a very important role and uh, the midday meal may be a very important source of bringing back nutrition therefore uh, you know in any case we serve midday meals in school they are just even more important and so i think the focus of the school as well as of the community to making sure that midday meals happen well uh, is 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 necessary and then as i as i said in my last response If you look at the learning levels of children, if you look at, uh, I mean, this is a podcast, so I can't show you the data. But if you look at over time ASER results, year on year, you will see that depending on the state, depending on the cohort, there is, uh, you know, um, I'm, I'm just giving you an example. If I take Uttar Pradesh, uh, there is for the younger age groups, different cohorts, different years, something like a five to ten percentage point improvement in their basic reading levels in a normal year. but but when the state has made as they have in the past a very concerted special effort by putting aside time putting aside energy for uh, building basic reading and math the last round with which we were involved actually showed that in about 60 or 70 days you could get up to 15 to 20 percentage point improvement in that very short period so if you were to do very focused efforts of that type for i'm saying for 100 days after schools open 
you would build back these learning levels in a much more significant way than if it was business as usual and normal curriculum being taught. So it's a big opportunity. And I think there are some, uh, I forget who said this, but this is a huge big opportunity to build back better. And I think that's the view that we should take of what is the goal for the remainder of the school year. So the school should essentially focus on catch up learning. Yes, because you know you will have lost some, you were already weak to begin with. And without having the fundamental building blocks of reading and math in place, it's very difficult to do anything beyond that. So take the time this year to rebuild back better. For the grades one and two, I think just easing into school, doing school readiness activities is what we should do. And for grades three and older, at least an hour a day for building back reading, an hour a day for building back specific math, starting at the level of the child, not at the level of the grade or the curriculum, and focusing attention on that. And many states have done it in remedial programs before. So it's not a, you know, it's not like we are saying anything new. Uh, and all the data that at least we have where we've been involved show very promising results if you do that. Does this place an extra burden on teachers, doctor? Not at all. I think the teachers are in school, as, but you have to free the teacher from the shackles of the curriculum. One of the things that puts the burden on the teachers is having to transact what is, has sometimes been called over-ambitious curriculum which means that you're a fifth standard teacher, you have to teach the fifth standard curriculum, but you know that there is a very large number of children in your class who are well, not just one grade level, but maybe two grade levels below. But because you are supposed to complete the syllabus in that year, you are not able to start to help those kids. So in situations where the system has decided that the top priority is to build these foundation skills, teachers are able to do that you know, quite effectively. So it's really what is the goal of what we want to do on schools open, how well aligned is the system to enable teachers to do that, and uh, you know how do we provide the support to teachers to be able to do that. I mean, every school system has people at the cluster level, people at the block level. So if you decide that the goal for this year is to ensure that every child in class five is reading fluently, can do all five four math operations, can write their own views, and then you uh, organize the time that is spent on this, uh, you know, both at the school level as well as the support that the school gets along these lines. And I think you'll come back, it will generate a lot of very positive energy. Parents will feel that there is immediate progress once the children went back to school. Teachers feel happy when children make progress. And I think it's a very good way to kind of spread positive energy. So you were talking to us about how uh, teachers need to be freed from the shackles of curriculum. Lots of states have already decided to uh, cut down on the syllabus given to teachers for this academic year. Do you think that should be a that should that should be a decision that should be taken by all the boards and all the schools? Yeah, so it's not just reduced curriculum. It is what is the goal? If the goal is to ensure certain things that children are able to do, then that's what you should focus on. Now, I, I can't speak for different boards because we have different kinds of schools, but I think it's important to think about the fact that just going back to business as usual may not be the right thing to do in many cases. For privileged children who are coming from very well-resourced families who have had online classes for six months, the situation may be different, but that's a minority in this country. And so, and those children I worry less about because, you know, there are parents who can take care of uh, take care of, uh, you know, some of these things. But for a large number of, uh, uh, you know, government school children, 
I think that if you just look at any available data, whether it's the National Achievement Survey or the other data, there is a real need to build some very basic skills. And so, you know, why would we not spend this year on getting that done, getting that done in a very fun way and allowing teachers to really get that job done? Right. Uh, you just mentioned online education, Doctor. Uh, we are a country of far-reaching inequalities. And in spite of the large number of mobile phone connections and TV and radio ownership, uh, and also the government guidelines recently released all want media to be used for education, access to digital education, as you just told us, is not uniform across regions. How has digital education overall worked and how can it be made more equitable? No, I, you know, it's hard to say that's a very big question. It's a big country, lots of things, different things have been happening. I think that what would be fair to say is that the potential of using the supplemental means in the long run, I think the possibility of that has become apparent to everyone in ways that in normal times we would have not really considered. Now, online, being online and having classes online, I don't think that's a luxury that's available to most. But I think what has happened is and I can speak from our own work, we have a direct connect in about 10 or 11,000 villages. And we've been able to send like simple messages, one WhatsApp or one SMS message to many families. Uh, we send almost 200,000 messages a day. And at the end of June, we actually, uh, uh, and these messages are followed by a phone call once a week. And so I would not say that what we are trying to do through this effort is to replicate what would have happened in the school, not at all. What we were trying to do with this effort is to stay connected, to stay sustained, to be able to provide something that the family can do together with their child. At the end of June, when we made phone calls to all these numbers, the overwhelming response we got is, please keep doing it because A, we have learned a lot from this direct connect. The feedback, phone calls, the follow-ups have given us a lot of feedback on the kinds of activities we were sending, on the kinds of things that the family thinks should happen. And it's also opened up channels of communication between, you know, the so-called instructors, which let's say we are the so-called instructors in this case, and the families. So I think that rather than thinking of this period as a period in which a lot of digital education happened, I would say that the successful thing in this period is the exploration of different possibilities so many states have brought TV programs, radio programs. They've learned what works, what doesn't. How can you have this in addition to whatever we will do once schools open? And, uh, you know, really think about the fact that over a period of time, we are probably going to need to have better digital connectivity that children can access across the country. may not happen overnight, but I don't see any reason why every village should not have some kind of a two-way digital communication possibility which may be used by children at some points of the day, by health people at other points of the day, uh, by, I don't know, you know, agricultural extension. That I think the large possibility of digital communication has become obvious. And so, you know, over a period of time, I'm sure infrastructure can be built around it. Doctor, you were talking to us about how, uh, because of the fo focus on teaching the curriculum and the syllabus, some children get left out. Uh, does this mean that we also need to relook our assessment systems? And is this an opportunity to do so? And is that necessary? I think it's a very good opportunity to relook at our curriculum. Assessments can only follow what is it that you expect. So, you know, what do we expect 
the new education policy clearly says that what you expect is by the end of second or beginning of third, you should have children being able to do some basic things well. And so if that is the goal, then you start working towards that goal. And then, you know, there could be some appropriate assessment measure that uh, tracks and sees whether uh, some of that is happening. Not just an exam. No, not at all. You cannot have an exam for young children. So, so it could be other assessments that could also be put in place, say, at home? No, no. Let's get this clear. Pen and paper assessments, which is the only way that we know how to do exams, are appropriate when you know how to read and you know how to understand what is written and then know how to respond. Having pen and paper exams for children, in, I mean, today, if I look at the ASAR data, I would say having pen and paper exams for children even in class 5, for 50% of them is a mistake because they can't read fluently as yet. So therefore, the way that we measure uh, children's abilities in a very, very basic way is actually to spend time one-on-one -on -one and do a couple of reading tasks with them and you can do oral comprehension as well. So if your goal is to figure out does your child understand something, then you'll have to work out a systematic way in which you can do this orally if you're not sure that they can read. So I think the goal has to be fixed and the national education policy has fixed a very basic foundational level for age three, I mean for class three. Now, if, if you're able to reach that level by class three, then by class five, of course, you can have some pen and paper kinds of things. But really, the real thing that matters is how a teacher assesses her child in a simple way and how she can therefore, you know, uh, tailor uh, what she's doing in her classroom to make sure that the majority of children benefit. So it's a question of how you set your goals, how you set up your system to support the acquisition of these goals. And in that support, you know, assessment would be one part of it. Can this be at an individual school level or does this have to come from the state? Well, you have to have some national goals. Our national education policy has set a national goal, which is a perfectly reasonable goal. And then, you know, you can work out what is the frame around this. And, uh, you know, I mean, I think we're making it much more complicated than it really is. I mean, it's a very simple thing. Children go to school, they learn some basic things, support the children to learn those basic things rather than accelerating a curriculum that neither the children are able to achieve nor teachers are able to deliver. And so, you know, bring it down to a level where everybody can participate. We have 95% of children going to school today because the going to school is understood by parents, by teachers, by the community. I think there needs to be, and I think the, the NEP, at least for the early grades, is heading in that direction. If you want to have learning for all, you have to make it possible and easy enough for everyone to do it. One last question before we go, Doctor. Uh, the uh, guidelines released by the Ministry also focus on uh, giving time for the child um, uh, for their emotional and mental health. How important is this, especially uh, as lockdown restrictions are easing and um, people are getting back to normal, but there is still a huge uh, problem in terms of job losses and, uh, and the economy? And see, the, the, the economic condition uh, is what it is and it will improve in its own time and schools can't really do anything about that. What schools can do is to create a, a, an environment where children feel safe and they feel secure and despite whatever is the condition at home, when you come to school, you can be with your friends, you can be with your teacher, you can be on, you know, learning some new things. And obviously, in any aspect of our life, social, emotional, you know, well-being is a, is a necessary condition for us to be able to function well. 
and i think schools will play a very important role because a big thing that has happened with during school closure is that children have not been able to meet their friends they have not been able to interact on their own and all of these things i think are very important for your well being and for your you know overall uh, you know uh, feeling that things are back to normal so i do think that you know in a safe phase wise reasonable way carrying people along if schools start opening it will improve the well being of children of adults and of everyone because opening of schools is a schools were the first to shut and potentially is the last thing to open and doing it in a safe and secure way that you can celebrate that my village my community is kind of getting back to some new routine will be a big positive for everyone right thank you so much for speaking to us today dr rukmini thank you